Good day, Kings Point residents. Raul Vargas here, behind the controls at your Kings Point podcast production studio. And today I have the pleasure of joining me here at the studio, Mike Termot, candidate for Congress for the congressional seat in Broward County District 20, the seat vacated by the passing of the late Alcee Hastings, who sadly passed away in April of this year. How are you, Mike? How are you doing today? Doing good. Thanks very much, Raul, and thanks for inviting me to join you today. Uh, it's an important opportunity for me to, to be able to communicate with, uh, with Kings Point. That's awesome because uh, this platform does give us the opportunity to reach out. There seems to be many candidates running for this empty congressional seat, so I'm sure they would love to hear your input on policy and how you can help the residents here, not only in Kings Point, but in all of Broward County. I appreciate that. There are quite a few candidates. Uh, most of them are, are Democrats and a few Republicans. It'll all be narrowed down to three coming out of the, uh, the primaries on November 2. It'll be just down to me as a Libertarian Party member, one Democrat, one Republican. Correct. Now, I'd just like for you to start by letting the residents here at Kings Point give them a little story about yourself. Let them know a little something. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm a police officer. I have been on patrol for the past 11 years in, uh, in Broward County at the south end. I work for the city of Hallandale. I work in what is a very diverse community, like many of the communities, I would argue most of the communities in Broward County and in Palm Beach County, very diverse. Whether you evaluate diversity in terms of culture, ethnicity, race, uh, wealth, income, or where people are from, uh, we have people from all over. It's an extremely diverse community. No matter how you evaluate diversity, uh, whether that's in terms of ethnicity or race or wealth or income, immigration status, where people are from, uh, the, the town where I work, Hallandale, is a very, very diverse community. I think it reflects uh, a lot of the rest of Broward County in that sense. I'm also an economist. Uh, before becoming a police officer, which is sort of a second career for me. I worked as a professional economist for many years, um, what'll seem like many, many years to the youngsters in your audience, uh, probably uh, around 20 years. I worked for a couple of banks. I worked for some federal agencies and uh, multilateral agencies and uh, trade associations, worked on uh, uh, budget issues for the White House for a couple of years, uh, financial uh, issues, public policy. Uh, had my own business in terms of educating bankers for, for quite a few years. Taught economics at Nova and at Barry and at George Washington University where I was in grad school in Washington, D.C. Uh, and worked as a substitute teacher for a couple of years on a part-time basis uh, in Broward County. So. I've been around uh, Broward County in a lot of ways for, for quite some time. That's excellent. Now, um, our questions today, I would say 65% are geared to the senior community because uh, Kings Point here is a 55 and over community. But I do also have some other questions for you. But I'd like to start by asking you, how will you help the senior community here in Broward County if elected into office? First of all, I think it's very important for our, our elected officials to bear in mind the commitment that we have to our seniors. I get the impression for, 
from so many of the uh, what I'll call newer generations of politicians that they don't seem to quite understand what it means for us to honor uh, that social contract that we have with our seniors. It's very important. And, 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 and I mean that in a couple of different ways. First of all, we have what I would characterize as a contractual obligation in our social security system. But perhaps as importantly, arguably more importantly, I think what it says about our national character is important. Our ability to take care of people in our society that have spent a lifetime taking care of us reflects one way or another on our society. And I would like to see us uh, as a nation continue to carry forward certain aspects of a culture that I fear may be left behind in future generations. I think that's very important. In terms of Social Security itself, we have to honor the elements of the contract, of course. And let me add quickly, Raul, that Social Security is not a great deal for seniors already. So, you know, when you think about the fact that the stock market returns six, seven, eight percent and more on a year-over-year basis uh, in a long-run sense, and the Social Security contract has been returning one percent, two percent for a variety of reasons. Right? Not only uh, are the are the funds invested in Treasury securities, but the benefits are defined by legislation and can be changed willy-nilly at any time. For these reasons. The deal is, is, is neither very good nor etched in stone. So we have all kinds of reasons to be, in my view, very, very worried about that. So I think, uh, I think a lot of attention needs to be on that. And like I say, not just on a contractual basis, but in, in an ethical sense, I might add. Yeah, that's correct. And you know, if you notice, uh, some of our seniors have had to take on jobs even receiving Social Security, you know, you see them working as greeters in Walmarts or in the publics doing odd jobs just to stay afloat and make ends meet. I understand, and I have uh, observed that, and having spoken with a number of them, uh, yeah, it has a lot to do with the erosion of the value of that uh, pension program that we call Social Security. The Social Security program is, is very unfortunately structured. You know, from the get-go in the 1930s, it was structured as a Ponzi scheme whereby which youngsters would be paying for the older generations. And it has naturally set up a tension between one generation and the next with politicians in the middle. Uh, it's just a race to see whether we can hang on to the benefits that we've been promised uh, before the succeeding generations find a way to erode that. So it's, uh, it's a political battle. I would like to see Social Security restructured in a way that in the future we won't be at the, the whim and mercy, and mercy of politicians going forward. Uh, for folks that are retired already, uh, I would like to see us uh, maintain on an inflation-adjusted basis our benefits. But for the youngsters, uh, who have not yet come into the system at all, I would like to see them being given an option uh, to put some of their Social Security proceeds into their personal IRA 
in order to relieve the obligation of the federal government uh, to pay those individuals future benefits because I think it would be a win-win for, uh, for everybody. Yes, it would. It would. That's correct. And it does need some kind of restructuring. That's not easy to do, politically no. or financially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but putting it off is not going to make it any easier, right? Correct. So uh, it's time for us to face and wrestle down that tiger. Now, I'm going to go to the topic of health care, and I'm going to intertwine two questions that I have. You know, it's funny and unconscionable that we live in the world's richest nation, and we can't have some kind of affordable health care policy, not only for our seniors, but in general. So what is your stance? What is your take on affordable health care? And how do you feel about this Medicare for all? I'm glad that you put it the way you did. It is, it is unconscionable. We have made mistakes in uh, our public policy that have led to this point. I want to talk about those specifically. And I also appreciated the way you said uh, for seniors, uh, for folks in poverty, and parenthetically, for, for almost everybody else. This is truly a national problem. This is not one group against another, one class, one age group, one ethnicity against it. We are all in this together, and we have come to this point together. The, the problems that have led to this started a long, long time ago, uh, before, before your time, if not before my time, Raul, uh, starting with federal tax policy that created an incentive for corporations to offer insurance uh, on a on a tax-free basis to their employees and we saw in the united states unlike other countries around the world we saw in the united states insurance take over the the uh the health services markets and you know it, it seemed like a good idea in the beginning uh but but the the fun eroded quickly Correct. when you separate the people who are paying from the people who are making decisions. It turns out that some fairly nefarious results are to be had. We have a very good healthcare system in terms of the technology that we are able to bring to bear. Uh, We are able to spend money on certain problems that no other nation is able to, to accomplish, which is why the wealthiest people in the world come here when they have very, very uh, tricky and substantial health problems. But we have absolutely no cost control in this country. So if you're not one of the, if, if if you're not the Shah coming here for uh, for that treatment that you can't get anywhere else in the world, if you're if you're you or me or anybody else who can hear my voice, it's really a predicament that we have no cost control. So uh, there's a couple of things that we need to do. I'm not a big fan of doubling down on this idea of insurance for everybody because I know that it it would make us feel good for a while. But in the long run, it is our dependence, our reliance on insurance that has contributed to us getting to where we are. We need a logical, stepwise, and careful plan to get us out of being totally reliant on insurance. One of the reasons I say that is not only because we have a cost control problem, but as anyone has noticed who has looked at your uh, statement of benefits, whether that's from Medicare or Medicaid, 
or uh, your Blue Cross Blue Shield or whoever your uh, Aetna provider is, if you've looked at your statement of benefits, you will notice that you have one price that the insurance company pays and one price that everybody else pays. And you might wonder, why is that? Why is it the insurance companies are able to negotiate down prices and the rest of us aren't? Well, of course, it's because the insurance companies have enormous leverage. Why don't the rest of us have that leverage? Why is it that a hospital will charge not just a lot more if you don't have insurance, but sometimes double, sometimes triple what they will charge for an insurance company? So while I'm not a fan of government intervention, one thing the government could do to help us out is to enforce a rule by which we had a single price for services, which would create enormous pressure to control costs, to bring down the price, because the price would have to be uniform for everybody. Correct. In other words, you wouldn't have to have insurance to get the best price. Mm -hmm. Right now, you have to have insurance to get a decent price. You know, if you're uninsured in the United States, you're going to get hammered. Let's be honest. You're absolutely going to get hammered. Indeed, if you have insurance and, and you have a fairly high deductible, as we all do now, right, you're getting hammered anyway. But if you have no insurance, wow. And it just keeps skyrocketing also. It just keeps going year over year over year. And a part of that is because of the new technology. Part of it is because labor costs are going up. But it all comes down to having no incentive to control costs. So we need a way to enforce one price. We need the government to get out of this tax subsidization of insurance. We need a way for us to get to a, a, a an insurance industry like we used to have, which is affordable uh, catastrophic insurance and for other costs to be paid out of pocket at reasonable prices. I uh, recently had a doctor's visit in a rural community in, uh, in Virginia where uh, my family has uh, a home. And wow, the difference, right? The difference in price versus doctor's prices down here cost of living, the technologies, the markets are all very, very different, right? But if an insurance company had been involved, and it wasn't, <laughs> to my chagrin, if an insurance company had been involved, they would have been paying that rural provider the same amount. And, and there goes the, uh, the cost control. So, yeah, I get why we all want to insure that, that hole in the donut that's uninsured right? Mm -hmm. But we need to remember that insurance is one of the big contributing factors for how we got into this mess in the first place. So we need to find a way to maintain the quality of our healthcare system, which is so wonderful that people will travel here from all over the world to get it, but at the same time create some incentive to control cost, and that's, that's the real bear. The housing market here in South Florida, well not only South Florida and all of Florida, is off the charts. It's turned into a seller's market. But um, what happens after that? You know, you sell, you, you make money on your home, and then you got to figure out what's the next step. Most people are selling and don't even have a plan B. Our seniors, all they want to do is live their lives. They've paid their dues. They've moved on. And all they want is to just enjoy whatever they have left. What is your input on affordable housing for our seniors? Housing markets have a couple of problems. One is on the cost side and uh, one is on the revenue side. First of all, in terms of how we pay 
for housing. The best number one thing that we can do for seniors is to protect their income, whether that's from Social Security or a different pension program or the return on their investment. We are building so much inflation into our systems that we have not yet seen, that I fear will one day come to roost, that I worry about the value in real purchasing power of what seniors have today in their fixed incomes. I worry about what that's going to look like in 10 years. If you have a uh, $3,000 fixed income today, uh, you certainly don't feel like that's a great deal of money, but you know what it is. You don't know what that's going to be in 10 years. If I tell you your 3000 is going to go to 3300 have I just told you you're going to be in good shape or in bad shape? You have no idea. But I can tell you that the risk is on the downside. The risk is that your pension plan is not going to keep up with inflation. As an economist, uh, I have the great pleasure of occasionally paying attention to M3 uh, and M1, the money stocks in the United States, that uh, I hope none of your listeners are paying any attention to, because if they are, they have way too much time on their hands and they need to find something else to do, right? That's my job as an economist. I can tell you that stock of money in the United States has gone through the roof. And this is what drives inflation. It's a combination of not just cash and things electronically on the books that contribute to the perception of cash, but the amount of debt that the United States has issued at the federal government level, how much cash is held inside the United States, outside the United States, by individuals and by investors. It's enormous. I fear very much what's going to happen to inflation. This has to be brought under control. That's number one. That's the big thing that drives the disparity between the cost of housing and how seniors are able to pay for it. Because their pensions don't, don't, don't keep up. But inflation drives the price of housing up and up and up and up. The, the biggest contributor to inflation today is housing prices. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reverse is also true. The number one place that's affected by uh, inflation is in housing. The U.S. government makes cash available. It comes through financial institutions. Interest rates come down, and it drives housing prices up. So we do need to worry about that. The other problem we have uh, in the United States, as, as elsewhere in the world, but for reasons that I haven't quite been able to identify yet, it seems to be worse in urban areas in this country, mm -hmm. is we have zoning ordinances that make it very difficult to construct affordable housing for seniors or for anybody else, for any other moderate income or fixed income American, we find it very difficult to, to construct affordable housing. Our zoning ordinances are set up to favor only one group, and, and that's the wealthy, wealthy single family housing. Uh, sure, I get that these are the individuals that hold the, the, the strings when it comes to the purse that drives the local politicians that set up the zoning ordinances. So I get the logical connection, Correct. right? Mm -hmm. But I just think it's an awful shame that we can't break this iron bond between the uh, influence of wealthy homeowners and the ability to construct affordable housing because of zoning ordinances. It's just awful. 
And when you combine those two things, uh, inflation driving up the, the cost of housing and eroding the value of pensions with zoning ordinances that make it more difficult to, to construct affordable housing than it is to construct wealthy housing, we've got a real problem. Because we know what these problems are analytically, policy-wise, there's not an economist in the United States who doesn't understand this, right? Uh, I, I can tell you, Raul, that it is not your good fortune to have the world's greatest economist sitting with you. All economists know this, okay? Right. I'm not telling you anything that uh, you can't get. A, spoken already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can get any uh, college freshman textbook and be able yeah. to figure this out. That, the that's fact 101. that it's 101. The fact that we know this and yet struggle with these problems, not just year after year, but decade after decade and generation after generation, implies that we have an ethical problem. That's why I'm running for Congress. Now, you mentioned to our listeners that you are law enforcement. So, first of all, I'd like, you th I'd like to thank you for your service because um, I respect law enforcement. Well, you're very and, kind. And, it's and, absolutely and my guys, pleasure. And you guys have uh, more than ever. You guys have a really tough job out there now. Well, thank you. It's my honor and the honor of the fellows that I work with and the women with whom I work to, and to serve our community. As a law enforcement officer, you have great knowledge and input on what's going on in our neighborhoods. So as congressmen, what actions or ideas do you have or would you take to make our neighborhoods better and safer? Thank you. You know, you're, it's funny, you're right about the knowledge part. And again, not because uh, I'm the smartest tree in the, uh, I'm sorry, the smartest apple in the tree. See, I can't even say the metaphor because it's true. Uh, you learn things as a police officer that you probably wish you didn't have to learn, right? I probably would have been just as happy without learning half of the things that I've learned having been on patrol the past 11 years you learn a lot about what policies work and don't work for the people of low and moderate incomes. You learn that our criminal justice system is an extremely heavy hand that our communities find difficult to bear. So the war on poverty, the war on drugs, the need for criminal justice reform, the need for police reform, all these are are, are birds of a feather. We need to address all of these individually and, and, and collectively. With regard to police in particular, and as you might imagine, one of the hot issues in District 20 this year is that relationship between police and our communities. To say that trust has been lost would be an understatement. Uh, the respect has been lost. Uh, the faith has been challenged. And that is something that we need to get back for our officers to be able to function effectively, but also for our communities to feel the safety that I know everybody in our community wants to feel. You know, nobody is happy uh, being unable to trust police officers. I don't know that police officers' behavior has gotten any worse over the years, but we certainly have been led to believe so uh, with all that uh, gets exposed uh, online. Whenever we make a mistake, it's all over the place, right? Uh, when, when we do something right, nobody hears about it. So, so that can be a, a bias against us. But as a public policy matter, 
I am not convinced that it's a completely bad thing for that bias to run against us. In other words, sure, the community is running a bias against us right now in terms of what they perceive, what they see, what's shoved down their throat by the media, but as a public policy matter, as much as it hurts my feelings personally, right, as a public policy matter, maybe that's the incentive, we, maybe that's the brick on the head that we need to make the reforms that, that we do need to make. As a police officer and as an economist, I've seen things in how we manage police that, that, that have to change. Number one, I think it's important to manage police officers more the way we manage employees in any other industry. There are some major differences between the way employees are managed in another business and the way they're managed in police departments. The contracts that are cut between cities and unions, for example, make it very difficult to fire a police officer who does not perform well. Makes it even difficult uh, to discipline a police officer. We need not only more effective discipline to hold officers accountable, but we need that to be more transparent so that communities will trust us more going forward. We need incentives for cities to and, and, and other municipalities to do that in an effective way. I'm a big proponent of politicians being more involved with police departments. And when I say that, I know I drive the, the folks that I work with crazy, right? Because so often we find that the politicians not only don't help us out, but actually run against us. I wish they were more involved, though, because nothing undermines your will to do a great job at work more than having your boss's boss's boss saying something completely moronic in the press the next day. Exactly. It's just horrible. When, when I see a politician criticizing a police officer, sometimes it's justified, sometimes it's not. But almost every time, it's with a complete absence of familiarity with what actually happened. You know, our elected officials have virtually no idea how I'm trained. How, how difficult your job is. They have no idea how difficult the job is. Maybe if they were involved in our training, and I don't mean they need to go through the training with us, but if they were familiar, if they'd at least watch, maybe they would be a little bit less surprised by what they see in a video from time to time. Uh, maybe they would find things they don't like. Maybe they could help make the changes that they would like. At the very least, there would be a better match between how we're actually trained and how the community would like for us to be trained. We need better communication and transparency, and the politicians could lead the way instead of Monday morning quarterbacking. So that has to, uh, that has to take place at some point. I'm not certain yet what the incentive structure is to get politicians more involved. But just like we need to hold a, a, to a greater standard of accountability police officers, we need to same, say the same thing to, to politicians. If, if I may offer a quick little story, um, I was sitting in on the negotiation between our union and, uh, and our city a couple of years back. I was not one of the union uh, representatives, but having been an economist, you might imagine, uh, let's, let's get Mike to listen in. He's the numbers guy, right? Right. 
Um, Especially when it comes to unions. Only cares about the budget. <laughs> yes, yes, the unions drive a lot of money, and public sector unions have a have a, a lot of problems in the United States anyway. You see that with teachers, you see that with police officers. We need to be able to hold teachers more accountable and police officers more accountable, and sometimes unions get in the way of that. But but to this story, uh, we're sitting in, in in the negotiation, and the representatives of the city uh, are engaged with us in, con in a conversation about what we want our pay raise to be, right? So we go in and we say we want, uh, I don't know what the number, you know, we want 5% raise, right? And they say, well, we only want to give you a 2% uh, raise. Okay, well, you know, we want 5, we only want to give you 2. So we start bantering back and forth and it takes two years to come to a number, right? While I'm sitting there listening, I'm waiting for the city representative to say, and we want greater accountability, we want more transparency, we want to be able to fire bad officers, we want to be involved in the training, we want to demand the type of officer that we want to represent our interests and to fight for the community's values in this city. Nada. Not a thing. They never brought it up. I'm just sitting there waiting for and, and, and. Not mentioned once. Not mentioned once. Do these people not have televisions? Do they not have newspapers? Do they not have an internet connection in their home? Do they not know what's going on in the world? Yes, I think that unions sometimes hold us back because they're so narrowly focused on protecting their members. I get that, right? And we can all be frustrated by that. But as a politician, as a city, as a community, as the commission, you've got to ask. Because let me tell you, you're afraid that, that asking is going to be completely rejected out of hand by the union, right? What if the conversation goes something like this? I, as your mayor, I'll give you the damned 5%, mm -hmm. right? I'll give you 6%. But here's what I want. I want the ability to hire who I want. I want the ability to hire someone from another organization, bring them in here, and not start them at the bottom. I want the right to determine what training is going to be at the commission level. I want the right to fire an officer just because he lips off in the wrong place. These are the things I want. I want greater transparency. I want to know what's going on. I want a memo every single week about the things that I care about. The union might say, what are you, crazy? Forget about it. Here's how the conversation goes the next day in roll call. The union rep comes in and says, yeah, the mayor said she'd give us uh, 6%, but she wanted all this kind of uh, reform stuff. I blew her off. I'm telling you, half of that room's going to say, you did what? <laughs> you, you did what? I could use the 6% raise, right? I consider myself a pretty good officer. I don't have a problem with reform. As a matter of fact, I recognize, like a lot of other people, that we need some reforms because I know that it would help build the trust between me and my community. And you just blew off a big raise for me because you thought I didn't want it. You go back into that negotiation and you tell the mayor, I'll take it. But the politicians have got to ask. If the politicians don't ask, we're not having the conversations that we need to have. And that's, by the way, the problem I have with a lot of our politicians who represent the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. 
when the Democratic Party politicians shout, defund the police, they're in effect signaling that they're not willing to sit down and go through the very difficult reform conversations that we need to have. It's a lazy response. I get it. It's a lashing out in anger. But what I find in talking to the constituents in this district of any age, of any uh, ethnicity, income level, racial demographic group, whatever group you identify in, nobody comes to me and says, I want to defund the police. Nobody. People want reform. People want good policing. They don't want no policing. They want good policing. We should be demanding more from police officers these days, not less. If I came to you, Raul, and said, I got four, uh, four young men and four young women who want to do the job, and they're each willing to do it for $29,000 a year, would you want them? No, I don't think so. We should be getting the best and the brightest. We should not be settling for people like I was 11 years ago. We should be shooting for the moon. We should be getting good, strong, smart professionals dedicated to doing right by our communities. And Republicans, they're no better. They're just blocking reform out of hand because they're hearing from the police unions that they won't go along with it. Well, heck, except for Tim Scott, the, the great Republican senator, these Republicans have got to do a better job of going to the union. I, I mentioned that because because Tim already works hard at maintaining relationships with the police and pushes for police reform. If other Republicans would reach out to the police, they would realize that police can be natural allies. No, we don't want stupid reforms, but neither should anybody else, right? It has to be managed in a way that everybody is comfortable. Look, we all understand, for example, that qualified immunity is going to go away. That frightens a lot of police officers. Yes, it does. Nobody wants to feel like, gee, if I make an honest mistake at work, I'm going to lose my house. You know, and it's funny. You touched on something that I discussed this morning with someone. Mike, it's, it's horrible that you can be a person that contributes, that's out there doing many positive things, whether in the community, in philanthropy, or just anything, you know. And the one thing the media always remembers is that one negative thing and mistake that might occur. And it's horrible it's because so true. it is something that it's, you know, we're all individuals. And yes, some people know the mistakes they're committing, but some, you know, they man up and say, yes, I committed a mistake. I learned from it. I want to move forward from it, but they don't let them live it down, and it's horrible. You're exactly right. We want it, as, as mentioned a moment ago, we'd like for the management of our business to be more like other businesses, more like labor management in other industries. In other high-liability industries, uh, uh, doctors, surgeons, for example, a lot of liability. Uh, you might uh, do 20 operations correctly in a row. You make a mistake, you lose your house. They buy insurance, mm -hmm. right? Malpractice insurance. Correct. Eventually, something similar to that will be available in our business. 
we don't want citizens to not have access to redress in court. That's not what makes officers nervous. What makes officers nervous is the personal implication for them when they make an honest mistake. So an officer, uh, yes, in the long run will be held accountable, will be liable for our mistakes, will have to buy malpractice insurance. Either our compensation will go up in order to offset that or the cities will pay for it. One way or another, you know, the market will work that out. We, we want markets to work. If you're an officer who just makes too many mistakes, you're not going to get insured. You're not going to get coverage. You're going to get priced out of the industry. That's an officer we don't want in the business. That's how we want markets to work. Mm -hmm. We want it. The, the surgeon that, you know, makes the same mistake in the operating room over and over again, we don't want that individual practicing. We want them priced out by their malpractice insurance provider. And believe me, insurance providers are not going to play nice with cops just for the sake of politics. So whereas politicians may not have the guts to step in and have the hard conversations that they need to have, Insurance companies won't be held back. Correct. They will hold the market accountable. There's bad apples in every bunch. And that's how we want it and, to work. You know, it has to be rectified because um, it's not getting any better. And then the thing is, you know, I understand you as law enforcement, you also have to deal with people walking up to your face and pulling out a phone and wanting to record and, you know, provoke a situation or just not respect what you're there for all the time know? and of course uh, you you learn patience and you learn restraint and uh, some officers are better at learning that than others sure and you know it takes a lot it takes a lot it's not something you know I'm sure with experience it gets better but um, it's not easy and that's why I commend you for what you do well I appreciate that and um, you did mention police reform which is a hot topic in Washington and not only in Washington, but all over. How do we get our communities and police to interact better with each other? I think we need to rebuild that faith. The communication, of course, is important. We've been talking about that for a generation. But I do believe that when we get the reforms in place, when the local politicians, the local leaders push for those reforms, when we see them pushing for those reforms, and then we get them put in place, we'll begin as communities to trust our officers more. When qualified immunity finally does fall, I think that we will see more individuals with that redress in court. We'll start to feel a little bit better that, uh, that the system works. We'll still have mistakes, right? No amount of of legislated reform is going to stop an individual from making a mistake. But when there's transparent discipline, when there's redress in court, when there's the ability for labor markets to work as they should to fire the bad apples, people will have greater trust. And the other thing that I think is important, back to the training issue, if your mayor, for example, we're able to stand up and say, uh, I've observed the training. I know what the training is. Here's three things that I think that we need to change. And those changes are actually made. People will at least believe that someone is trying 
to match the interests of law enforcement and the interests of the community. That I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Now, Kings Point here has the privilege and the advantage that they have, you know, the platform podcast. They have several public service channels through their cable subscriber that keeps the residents here informed. But we have communities, whether for the seniors, the youth, or just residents in general, that don't have that luxury. How, how can we get representatives to visit more of these communities, more of these community centers, whether it be a YMCA, a boys or girls club, or just an auditorium in general, you know, to set up a forum to keep the residents involved. I myself know for a fact I'm a resident of Tamarack. Tamarack offers a lot of programs to both residents, seniors, to the youth. But sometimes even living in this community, you don't know what's available. So how can we bridge that gap? We need to do a better job of organizing in a number of, uh, in, in a number of cases. Ta the, the, the Kings Point residents are lucky, lucky because they do have a couple of individuals who have taken it upon themselves uh, to foster that communication in both directions. And I'm not suggesting that we can't do more of that, right? I'm just suggesting that for every frustration a Kings Point resident might have, it's twice as bad outside right. <laughs> of this community. Um, and I know, Raul, that, that you asked that with a little bit of trepidation because you were afraid I was going to say the answer is 24-7 podcasting and that you were <laughs> never going to be able to uh, sleep again. <laughs> And that you were just going to have to just stay on the air forever. Uh, I do, kidding aside, I do think that what you're doing is important. Uh, I think what residents have to do above all else is vote. Politicians see who votes. Politicians are not allowed to see who you vote for, but they do see who votes. And the more votes that are cast in any given building, in any given block, in any given household, the more response you will get. Um, so, so don't underestimate how greedy politicians are for votes. Uh, if everybody votes, and, and you know the mail-in is the thing from now on, right? Uh, we don't have to go to the, the, the polling location in a physical sense. We can do it through the mail. We need to all be voting. That will get the politicians more involved. Then organize on your local level. And that organization can be for communication purposes. Here's what's going on. But it can also be for outreach to the politicians. Not all politicians are very good for the outreach back. Uh, sometimes that we need we need to to reach out to them to find and create new venues for them to come and share their ideas with us and then and then hold their feet to the fire. For example, when when we talk about police reform, uh, I know because I've been in those community meetings. Nobody is asking, uh, Commissioner, to what extent are you involved with our our police training? You know, we have deep concerns, not only in our own community, but around the country, for what we see police officers do uh, that seems to be legal, right? 
what police officers are doing in some cases, maybe we don't like it, maybe we don't understand it, it seems to be legal. Talk to us about what that training is like and what we can do to make it more the way that, that we believe it ought to be. And the commissioner says, well, yeah, actually, I haven't been in training. I, I haven't, I haven't looked, really looked into it, you know. Okay, that's your red flag right there. That conversation doesn't happen, though, if your community isn't voting and inviting your politician uh, to come back and address. For commissioners and politicians in the city, it should be a requirement to be involved because um, it's, it's something that I myself have been fortunate to have BSO in here. I've done several several segments with uh, a sergeant of criminal investigations because our seniors are very vulnerable to crimes. And one of the biggest crimes towards our seniors is credit card scams. Huge. So I have done many segments on crimes affecting the senior community. Good for you. And it's really been helpful because... Uh, it's 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 horrifying just to know that a senior has been taken advantage of. It is horrifying, both in a financial sense and the, that feeling of having been violated, the intrusion, uh, having been made to feel a fool. Not one of us hasn't had that feeling. We've all been through it. Of course. And it, it's, it's not uh, merely something that affects seniors, but yes, People do go after seniors who are, you know, we're from, I'm 60 years old myself. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up with all the computer gadgetry that we have today. My generation is less familiar with the ways in which we need to protect ourselves and the generation after me. Uh, and I suppose I'm a little bit more familiar th than the generation ahead of me, right? That's just the nature of the beast. And so... Our seniors are a natural target for, for people. And it's a numbers game. You know, the criminals will keep coming after us over and over and over again until they get the bite of the apple that they want. So I commend you for, uh, for talking about the, the problem itself. And I might also suggest, good for you for having a relationship with BSO. It's important. It's very important. And I've been fortunate to also do it in several other languages. I'm working on getting one done in Creole, but I've also had a Latin American, a Spanish officer here, and we did a, a segment in Spanish for our Spanish-speaking residents. Good for you. I think that's fantastic, and I would urge you to consider uh, future podcast ideas to include uh, officer training, uh, what it is that officers are instilled with, um, a lot of folks will be, I believe, disappointed to learn the extent to which officers are trained with that warrior mentality. I am not suggesting that in every case that's a bad thing, but that is a potential hot topic that does need to be more fully understood. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be able to turn it on and off when needed. You have to be able to turn it on and off. There needs to be greater, uh, what I would call, de-escalation mm -hmm. training, the, the turning it off part uh, of what you just mentioned. Communities need to be more aware of what the training is like and where maybe the soft spots are, are and need to be uh, beefed up. Now, I for a fact know Kings Point here has a good amount of gay residents, and that's become a very discussed about topic 
What is your stance on LGBTQ rights? Well, thanks for asking. As, as was briefly mentioned in the beginning, I'm a member of the Libertarian Party. I'll be on the ballot as a Libertarian. Our party was the very first to recognize uh, gay rights, uh, the right to same-sex marriage, to be a proponent uh, for folks to avoid discrimination of all sorts, uh, based on orientation, based on identification. And I personally find this a very important part of the Libertarian Party platform. And importantly, Raul, understand that the reason the Libertarian Party has been uh, able to put at the center of its platform equal opportunity uh, for whether it's LGBTQ or uh, equal justice across ethnicities, across race, immigration status. The reason is because we believe your rights do not come from the government. They come from a higher authority. Mm-hmm. We believe this so earnestly that we are most bothered when a government, any government, steps in and separates you from your rights we can all discuss how we can maintain equal opportunity when a private sector organization tries to separate separate you from your rights and that's that's worthy of debate that's worthy of debate but when a government fails to protect your rights i believe as a libertarian the government has failed in its most fundamental obligation if our government has any legitimate purpose at all and as a libertarian, we argue all the time about the extent to which governments have legitimate purpose, right? To the extent to which our government has any legitimate purpose, it is to protect us. It is to keep Americans safe. And by that, I mean protect our God-given rights. I believe your rights need to be protected. I believe my own rights need to be protected, but not because they're my rights, your rights need to be protected because they come from a higher authority. I would give my life to protect someone else's rights, not because you and I have anything in common. And this is, to a libertarian, a very important point. You should not be voting for a politician who stands up for your rights because your interests collide. If you are uh, Hispanic, don't vote for a politician just because he or she is Hispanic. If you're white, Certainly don't vote for a politician because he or she is white or black or gay or wealthy or poor or from Canada or from Nebraska. These are all horrible reasons to vote for a politician. Why vote? Why vote? Right. Just, just turn in your ID card and you know we'll, we'll presume how you vote. Vote for someone who's going to stand up for your rights because they're your rights because that's the right thing to do, not because we have something in common. I certainly hope I don't have to rely on someone else to stand up for my rights because of what we have in common. I mean, that means I would have to rely on what? Uh, Aging, uh, balding, white guys uh, with a degree in economics who became a police officer. You know, there's not going to be a lot of people in my demographic I can rely on. Are you looking in the mirror? You know, I, I need to be able to rely on people who believe in protecting rights for the sake of it. And I hope that 
people understand that that's what the Libertarian Party is for. Uh, and that's, again, why I'm running for Congress. Well, coming from an old school family, I was taught to treat everyone equally the way I wanted to be treated. And that's the way I was brought up. So it is important. Equality is important. And good for you. And, and irrespective of what it is about each other that we might uh, appreciate or not appreciate. Now, people seem to forget this country was structured and built on immigration. You know, our ancestors coming here, taking on tough jobs to help build and build what we have today. And it's turned out that immigration reform is a hot topic now. What is your stance on immigration reform? Well, I'm really glad you brought it up. Uh, I believe that everything you said is correct. And, and let me see your bid and, and even raise you just an inch. Not only is this country, not only has this country been built on immigration and all of the contributions of, of immigrants, I would argue that our country is defined by current immigration. In other words, a part and parcel of what the United States is, a part and parcel of what America is, is a constant influx of immigrants. In other words, to me, it's not enough to say, well, we were built on immigrants, and that was a long time ago, and we developed a multicultural phenomenon on this continent, and we're done with that and marching forward. That doesn't cut it for me. I believe that what America represents, when we are at our best, is a tolerance for multiculturalism, a commitment to pluralistic democracy, certainly, and individual rights, irrespective of the differences that we may have, but that that has to be renewed every day. We have to bring in immigrants just for the sake of it. It's not enough to say, we used to do that. That is who we are. We are a nation constantly evolving, changing, innovating, bringing in new peoples. This is one of the very few things that sets us apart from the rest of the world. Our commitment to democracy and constitutional republicanism, with a lowercase r, defines us, certainly. But that has to be matched up with a very robust immigration policy. So, in a sense, I believe that a pro-immigration policy is a pro-America policy. It is continuing to define America as we have been defined in the past. In that sense, a progressive immigration policy, I would argue, is the most conservative policy you can have because it's protecting who we are. We are a nation that constantly changes. The more things change, the more they, they stay the same. Not only do we have to be more pro-immigration, we need to be more pro-immigrant. The way that we treat people on their way in uh, is, is unacceptable, needs to change, and is being viewed. We are being watched, not only by people around the world, but we watch each other domestically. Mm -hmm. How can we look ourselves in the mirror and say, this is how we treat people? And by the way, not other people. This is how we treat ourselves. These are Americans. 
certainly in an hour they're going to be Americans, right? How do we treat our fellow Americans this way? Is that the way you would have wanted your grandmother to have been treated on her way in? Of course not. Is this the way that we want the rest of the world to see the United States? No. Of course not. By the way, if I can get off my high horse and get on a low pig for a moment and be the economist that I am, immigration is good economically for the United States. And I will brook no argument on this point. Immigrants are not only a net plus in terms of revenue to the federal government and local governments. They are more so that way than people who are born and raised in the United States. And I want that to sink in with our audience for a minute because not only do I think most people don't realize that, I suspect there's a good proportion of people who don't want to believe that. Immigrants commit less crime, depend less on public programs than people who are born in the United States. And, by the way, we have a demographic problem in the United States. We're talking about the Ponzi scheme problem we have with our Social Security system. We need to bring in more young people. We need to bring in more young people who are going to have children. And that means immigrants, to be honest. When immigrants come to the United States, they are typically beyond the ages at which they need to go to primary and secondary school. So we don't have to bear the cost of, of their primary and secondary education. And they are typically not so old that they're beyond uh, their reproducing years. They are in the sweet spot for the people that we want to have come to the United States uh, as and immigrants. It, and it's funny, I'd like to add that, you know, people complain but they forget. Just get in your car and drive around a community. Who's cutting your lawn? Who's on top of your roof doing the roofing? You know, who's doing the hard labor on some of these jobs most people complain about and don't want an immigrant? You're absolutely right. And, and police officers and firefighters and all kinds of public servants, uh, nurses, uh, technologists, these are people that are, in many places, forming the backbone of our communities. Yes, they just want better. That's all they want. That's all they want. And, and by the way, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but if, if I were in Central America this year, you're darned right I'm doing everything I can to get myself my family, my future family, over that border. And when you think about the type of people who you would like to be your neighbor in the future, I want that guy who will do anything to build a better life for his family. Give me that, give me 10 of those guys in my town. I say that all the time. It's true. Now, Mike, you mentioned to our listeners today that you are an economist. What is your stance on economic security and income equality? And how do you feel and what do you think about this fair minimum wage? 
We've got a big problem in terms of income equality in the United States. I see it a little bit differently than a lot of other people see it. Yeah, I look at the data and see the yawning gap, right? The, it, it has a, a couple of problems uh, that I'd like to talk about very, very granularly, very specifically. When we look at uh, income mobility in the United States, Throughout our economy, we see a great deal of movement, high class to middle class, middle class to upper class, uh, people with great wealth losing it, and people in, in middle income areas building great wealth in a, in a generation, sometimes relatively quickly. We do not see that on the bottom rung of the economic ladder. We don't see the same mobility. We've got a problem with what I would characterize as intergenerational that persistent poverty. We have a very difficult time shaking it. People who are in poverty as a, as, as a family matter, as a community matter, find it difficult to get out of poverty and show the same type of mobility that we see in the rest of the economy. Things work differently at the bottom rung of the ladder. And the reason it works differently is because we have a number of public policies that hold people back. Now, the reasons that people wind up in poverty are a, a, a multitude. And certainly, uh, we see that there is a, a great deal of correlation between ethnic minorities, racial minorities, and poverty. And that comes, of course, as no surprise as someone who grew up in the 60s. I remember how awful racial discrimination has been in this country. We went not just decades, not just generations, but we went centuries with very explicit and very brutal legal anti-black policy in the United States. To say that that should be expected to leave a lasting impact is an understatement. Few things are as important to understanding economics and the economics of poverty in the United States, a few things are as important as that. So we see a huge correlation between uh, racial minority and poverty in the United States. We have, thankfully, right, outlived the explicit racism of the past in, in legal forms. That's the good news. The bad news is that if you were in poverty in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, your community is very likely to be feeling the remnants in the 90s and the 2000s, this decade, the next decade. We trap people in poverty, and we do that in a couple of different ways. We do that with, with what I would call the heavy hand of criminal justice. We criminalize things in a way that we should not be criminalizing. In police work, we're, we're fond of saying, uh, no victim, no crime. And that's because when, e even in circumstances where there is a victim, mm -hmm. right, if that victim doesn't participate in the prosecution, uh, that conversation is typically over, mm -hmm. right? But the state of Florida has decided that even if there is not an identifiable victim, we're still going to prosecute certain crimes and, of course, namely what I'm talking about is marijuana and other drugs. When we 
criminalize these things. And, and by the way, uh, something we're going to talk about more in a moment, but let me say really quick, I am not suggesting that drugs are a good idea for anybody. What I am suggesting is that when you criminalize them, you make two things happen. One, you make it very difficult for people who have drugs either in their system or in their household to reach out for the help that they need. They don't want a police officer showing up at their door, right? In the last couple of years, I have performed CPR in a lot more drug addicts than I have taken to jail, right? We, we, we don't arrest people for weed anymore. Uh, we rarely arrest people for possession anymore. But we do have a giant opiate addiction problem in the United States and have for many, many years, which is why, of course, we do so much CPR in the community and largely ineffectively. The other thing that happens when you criminalize drugs is that you create profitability in street crime. This is what drives community violence, the profitability in criminal behavior that has no legal framework. If you need to settle a dispute in the drug business, it's with violence. You can't go to the courts. You don't call a cop. You, you can't even bring in your brother-in-law, right? It's just a mess. This is where the violence comes from. Uh, this is where the shootings come from. This is what's gone wrong in Chicago. This is what's gone wrong in Broward County. This is what's gone wrong in the west side of the town where I work, in my own zone. This is a problem that has to be addressed differently than to keep pursuing the war on drugs that we have been fighting since the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. To keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is just silly. This is, however, where our politicians are, doubling down. Uh, look, when the crime bill was passed in the 90s, in 1996, yeah, we were optimistic, right, uh, to be honest. I mean, who wasn't? You know, we're all looking for some kind of solution. We all hoped, uh, okay, cracking down, people say it's going to work, let's hope it does. Turns out now we ought to feel stupid turns out that locking people up, and, and by the way, our sentencing is longer than any other nation in the world by far, turns out that locking everybody up just destroys the communities, doesn't destroy the, the, the profitability in street crime. Arguably, it drives up the profitability because now you've, you've added a, a, a layer of fear and retribution from the state, making it more difficult to conduct business that's just going to drive up profitability. So we keep bringing people into street crime, making it profitable, and then punishing them. This is not a recipe for getting out of poverty. We have broken families. We end up in bad parenting situations. We don't raise our kids correctly in so many communities. Then we send them to bad public schools. The public schools have a monopoly over primary and secondary education in the United States. That has to end. Bad public schooling and the criminalization of victimless behavior draws people away from productive careers into street crime, and you see the cycle go on and on and on and on. That's where this persistent intergenerational poverty comes from. 
that's what we need to address very differently from what the Republicans and the Democrats are suggesting. That's why I'm running for Congress. Well, you brought up education, and my next question is, you know, our children, our youth, our young adults, they're our future. They're going to be holding the jobs that are important in years to come. Say it isn't so. Now, my question is, do you feel we have adequate schooling and educational programs? No. Or can we use a lot more? Yes. Did you, did you want me to elaborate, or are we done there? Please. <laughs> <laughs> Our big problem in terms of education in the United States is at the primary and secondary level. Our higher education system is the envy of the world. If you grow up outside the United States and you don't dream about coming to college in the United States... Shame on you, because our collegiate system is so far superior to that anywhere else outside of our borders that it's not even competitive. It's not even close. I don't know who's in second place, but they're a distant second. And the reason for this is because there's more government control, government intervention, more government dictates in colleges outside the United States than inside the United States. At the primary and secondary level, we have a problem. And our problem is that local public schools have a monopoly over the use of public funds. That means that families, typically, the average family, particularly in District 20, right, in Broward County and Palm Beach County, families typically have very little reasonable choice other than to go to the particular public school that is prescribed for them. They cannot afford a, a private school. They don't have a choice to take the financing that their local municipality has raised to pay for education and spend that on a private school. Most people don't even have access to a charter school. Charter schools are outperforming other non-charter public schools in the United States by far. That debate is over. Mm -hmm. That debate is no longer reasonable. Charter schools outperform. And by the way, as an aside, charter schools outperform whether they're unionized or not. We used to believe that the big uh, problem with public schools was nothing more than teacher unions. And teacher unions like police unions uh, have problems and they frustrate us and, and we don't like their influence in the body politic. All, all of that is true. However, we have learned that charter schools outperform other non-charter public schools, whether they're unionized or not. So the big problem isn't the unionization. The big problem is the monopolization. Correct. We have taken away incentives for schools to innovate, to do better, to make changes. And so we are stuck with the worst performing industry in America. It is not a coincidence that the worst performing industry in America is the same as the most monopolized industry in America. The one place where families don't have a choice, they have to send their kids to this school that has no incentive to make real fundamental changes. Consequently, many of our public schools are just not good. Uh, I would not have realized how weak public schools were in Broward and Palm Beach counties were not for the fact that I've seen uh, two things. One, public schools elsewhere. When I was, uh, w w when my kids were small, right, uh, when they were 
starting out in elementary school, I was outside of Washington. I was working in Washington, and uh, they were growing up in Arlington County, arguably the best public school system in the world. It was great. One of the reasons it was so good was it had to be. It had enormous competition because it was one of the wealthiest communities in America, and we had good private schools. The Catholic schools were there, for example, and other private schools, holding everyone's feet to the fire. By the way, those Catholic schools were pretty darn good, too. I'm a Lutheran, so uh, I didn't really opt into the Catholic school, but... I went to Catholic school till eighth grade. So. I can, well, I, I hope yours was as good as the one that we had in Arlington County, uh, really holding the public uh, school's feet to the fire. Came down here to Broward County. I worked uh, for a couple years as a substitute teacher. Wow, what a difference. What a difference. District 20 doesn't have much in the way of private school competition. Families can't afford it. The families in District 20 need access to that public financing to go to wherever the families decide for their children to go, whether it's a public school or private school, charter school, what have you. The people in District 20 are frustrated because we don't have private schools here. I can guarantee you the Archdiocese of Miami would take notice if money were made available for private schools to operate in District 20. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't take a generation. No. Um, I raised two kids in Broward County after moving down here from Arlington. One went, well, they went back and forth. Sometimes we were in private school, sometimes we were in public school. My daughter went to the local Catholic school, which not coincidentally was in a wealthy community, right? One of the wealthiest communities in Fort Lauderdale uh, was, uh, was where her Catholic school was. And notwithstanding the mortgage I had to get on the house to pay for it, it was worth every penny, right? My son opted uh, to go to uh, public high schools. And while he was able to craft a good experience for himself, I would argue it is almost impossible to get a top drawer level education in a public high school setting in Broward County. Mm -hmm. You're right about that. Now, Lastly, Mike, I want to touch a topic that has become very delicate to discuss. We're living in some very trying times. And one of the biggest things we're going through, many are going through, is this division going on in this country. What is your stance on social and racial justice? We need to pursue justice period. In other words, when, when our communities feel better about our reform of the criminal justice system in general, right, we will as communities start to feel better about justice in particular. When we wake up in the morning, I don't want us to feel like I'm waking up as a black man, as a white woman, as a Hispanic mom. I want us to wake up in the morning as a resident of District 20, right? I want to be proud of the community that, that, that we're raising our children in. This is where we need to go. 
This is why we need to reform our criminal justice system, reform the way we manage police officers, reform the way we finance public schools, not because of a particular minority group, not because of a particular majority group, not because of a particular immigrant group, but because this is what we need to do for our communities so that everyone can feel a part of a growing and vibrant community. We won't be arguing about the reasons why we're mired in poverty if we can stop doing the silly things that we've been doing for four generations to address poverty incorrectly in the first place. Our systems are biased against people in poverty. Our systems lock in poverty. But importantly, we lock it in whether you're black, white, or Hispanic, whether you're from Haiti, whether you're from Canada, whether you're from France, if you're in the United States and you're mired in poverty, you're potentially stuck there for more than a generation. This is the problem, and this is why it needs to be addressed. Unfortunately, the one thing that I have learned, being both an economist and a police officer, and, and and, and trust me, if you are on the road uh, in a diverse community patrolling for 11 years as a police officer, you become an economist, whether you were before or not. Okay? If there's one thing I've learned by being on patrol as an economist, it is that poverty is a political phenomenon. Poverty that we observe in our cities, in our urban areas around the United States, poverty that we observe outside of the United States, is prolonged because of bad public policy. We fight racial discrimination. We've made huge strides in terms of racial discrimination. We have a long ways to go. We have not made similar strides in fighting poverty. Our public policy toward poverty has got to change. Mm -hmm. Now, Mike, I just want you to share with the residents any information you might have as far as campaign sites, uh, contact information, if anyone wants to volunteer and help with your campaign or just wants to just know a little more about you. I appreciate that. Uh, the first easiest, best thing to do is to visit the website. Um, MikeTremont2022.com. Of course, you got to spell it right, right? M-I-K-E-T-E-R-M-A-A-T-2022.com. Of course, it's 2022.com because the election isn't until January 11. Before Governor DeSantis set the date for the election, our team and I announced that I'd be participating in this race we reserved MikeTremont2021.com and found out that was a waste, that the election isn't going to be until January. So it's MikeTremont2022.com. And from there, you'll see our Twitter feed. You'll see our Facebook feed. Um, I'd like to offer my email address and my phone number. And the reason for that is that my phone number, 954-547-8996, is my real phone number. That doesn't go to you know, some underpaid uh, intern who doesn't want to answer the phone. To, to the Mike Termot hotline. <laughs> the, the, the Mike Termot hotline is actually my cell phone role. In, it's the same one that you use, okay? So when you text me saying, Mike, be sure you're here at one, you're using 
the same text line as I want all of the residents of Kings Point to, to use. Uh, yeah, probably better to text me than to a phone call because I won't know who the heck you are. But if, if, if someone would like to participate in our campaign, I would encourage them to drop me a text, 954-547-8996. We do need volunteers, by the way, uh, not to answer the phone, obviously, because I do that myself. But we are going to be uh, soon coming into the uh, door-to-door phase. We need people to drop off uh, door hangers. Our door hangers are going to talk about a a pro- rights, uh, pro-individual liberty message, pro-police reform, uh, pro-education reform, protecting our commitment to seniors, protecting the way our government represents itself on an ethical basis, both domestically and internationally. These, I believe, are the issues that so many people care about in District 20 as well as in Tamarack and specifically in Kings Point. So we could use help. Um, and uh, if anyone would just like to chit-chat or meet, uh, I come down here sometimes on uh, Tuesdays uh, to meet with the folks over at 7620, the, the, your, your headquarters building. The Tuesday tables with the clubs. Yeah, and that's uh, a lot of fun. My wife, Nancy, who's sitting here with me, she and I are going to be heading over to the tables uh, momentarily although i understand that today may be a day off because yeah they, of the they, i was by there earlier they only till 11 but being that they have a we're in jewish holiday yeah they uh it was quite a right you know everyone is you know no i understand by the time people hear this it'll be uh, too late to wish everyone a happy holiday but i hope it goes uh, well and meaningfully for all of our uh, all of our residents here now lastly mike the floor is yours. What last parting words do you have for our residents today? Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you providing the service of letting your residents get to know the people running to represent them. And uh, by the way, I appreciate the, the Tuesday opportunities to get to know your residents as well. Listen, I'm a big believer that history bends toward what matters in the long run. In other words, I believe what our government does to recognize our individual rights will eventually come home to roost, whether our politicians admit it, like it, recognize it or not. And for this reason, we need to elect politicians who share ethical and moral values with the members of our community. If we would do that more, I believe we would not only get better police reform, but we would also make fewer mistakes on the international stage. One of the things that's been playing out the past couple of weeks is the debacle in Afghanistan. And uh, I really believe that we have accidentally uh, biased our policies in favor of the power of our politicians and their image and away from honoring our commitment to take care of and protect Americans, and by the way, to recognize the power that other people outside the United States have in terms of that yearning for self-determination and autonomy. We need to learn these lessons abroad. We need to learn these lessons at home. 
And one of the reasons I'm running for Congress is that I believe that the values that are represented, represented in our community, I share and I want to bring to Washington for you. Excellent. Well, Mike, on behalf of myself, the staff and the residents here at Kings Point, I'd like to thank you for partaking today and coming and sharing your views on policies and letting and enlightening the residents here know a little about yourself. Thank you, Ro. And um, there you have it, Kings Point residents. Today, our one-on-one -on -one with candidate for Congress, which covers District 20 in Broward County and parts of West Palm Beach, Mike Termot. So remember that name, guys. And Mike, you're welcome to come back from here to the election. We can do an update. You can address the residents once again. It was my pleasure having you here today at the studio. And once again, thank you and good luck on the upcoming election. Thanks very much. I look forward to it.